The right to own a gun should not infringe upon the right to live a life. Too many guns is basically just infringing upon that more important base right. Coming up on Carolina Connection, gun violence across the country and in the triangle has empowered UNC students to take action. Good morning, I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Brianna Atkinson. Also this week, a vending machine comes to Orange County to fight the opioid crisis. North Carolina's Supreme Court will rule soon on funding for poor school districts. A new Chapel Hill business wants to be the Uber of caregiving. And we take you downtown to Chapel Hill's Festival. And so now you have this collective of everyone's interpretation and it really is just like this beautiful masterpiece of like just community and togetherness. From the UNC Husband School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. Another community is mourning after a mass shooting, and this time it's close to home. Police say a teenage gunman opened fire in a Raleigh neighborhood Thursday evening, killing an off-duty police officer and several others. At UNC, the campus chapter of March for Our Lives rallied outside of South Building yesterday. I spoke with President Megan Chin and Vice President Luke Diasio as they were preparing for the demonstration. I asked how the shooting in Raleigh is affecting the organization's members. So March for Our Lives was started after the Parkland shooting in 2018, and um, there was a nationwide protest to try to combat gun violence. And although we've achieved so much through the organization, unfortunately not much has changed. Um, it's gotten to the point where when shootings happen, not a lot of people care about it because it happens so often. Um, and it's gotten to the point where it's just too bizarre um, for the people who are directly impacted. And a good amount of us are directly impacted. Even if we don't know somebody who has been a victim of gun violence, we still connect with the communities who are at risk. Yeah, like Megan said, uh, we're definitely growing desensitized to the issue of mass shootings. Um, there have been 300,000 students who have uh, been on a campus where a mass shooting has occurred. And the kind of collective uh, community trauma that uh, results from that is horrible. Um, and we haven't seen enough change in America. Uh, so as a group, we're really trying to fight to push for more concrete action by Congress. We got closer with the uh, Safer Communities Bill in June, but um, there's still more work to do. Programs like Buyback, um, where we reduce the amount of weapons in America, uh, and there's, there's still more work to do. You know, on a local, state, and, and national scale, what is that... Um what does that end goal, what does that change look like for, for both of you? March for Our Lives uh, National has a very great list of demands that they are striving to push for. Buyback programs, more funding for uh, school safety, more anti-violence community initiatives, uh, more red flag laws, um, and things like that. Uh, a ban on assault weapons. These are all things that March for Our Lives advocates for. You know, the com a common argument uh, among gun rights activists is, you know, that like this is a Second Amendment right and this is really um, a mental health issue that, that the country is dealing with. What would you guys say in response uh, to, to that kind of argument? Well, let's look at the historical precedent. The Second Amendment states that we have a right to a self-regulating militia. It was interpreted by the Supreme Court to mean that everyone can carry around guns. So. Depending on your view of the Constitution, uh, you may have a different take on what the founding intent was with weapons in America. Yeah, it 
when the Second Amendment was made, it took minutes to reload a gun, and now we have assault rifles that fire way too many shots per minute. The right to own a gun should not infringe upon the right to live a life. Too many guns is basically just infringing upon that more important base right. So, um, yeah. But I will say, March for Our Lives is a nonpartisan group, and we're advocating for um, better gun policy, sensible gun par policy. You know, a lot of the founders of March for Our Lives have parents, have relatives uh, who own firearms, and we're we're not looking for uh, America to completely get rid of weapons. So we want to be very clear. We're looking for sensible gun policy that everyone can agree on, and that's what we're pushing for. Thank you guys both so much for doing this. Thank you. That was UNC March for Our Lives President Megan Chin and Vice President Luke Diasio. The opioid crisis in North Carolina is getting worse, with overdoses increasing 40% in 2020, the most recent year with data. At the Orange County Detention Center, a new vending machine is part of a plan to combat overdoses in high-risk communities. Lorelai Sykes has the story. In the lobby of the Orange County Detention Center stands a vending machine with the power to save lives. Inside are Narcan nasal spray kits. Narcan is a brand of naloxone that reverses an opioid overdose by blocking the opioid receptors in the brain and restoring normal breathing, according to the Orange County website. In 2021, 3,759 people died in North Carolina due to an opioid overdose, and 29 of those deaths were Orange County residents. Caitlin Finhagen, Criminal Justice Resource Director for Orange County, says that these rising statistics weren't just local. There's been a significant rise in opioid overdose rates here in Orange County, just like there has been across the state and across the country. This is one of six vending machines in North Carolina, funded by a grant from the National Center for State Courts, and it's facilitated by other state and local groups. Finhagen says that the process of applying for this grant required large amounts of research, and they found that individuals recently released from prison or jail are at higher risk of an overdose. Folks who are involved or at risk of criminal uh, justice system involvement um, are at a much higher risk, especially those who may be incarcerated with an opioid use disorder and not getting medication-assisted treatment because when they come in, if they are no longer on their um, or never were on medication-assisted treatment, then they will not, um, their tolerance gets um, reduced significantly, so they're 40 times more likely to overdose than the general population. And combating this issue is exactly what the Lantern Project in Orange County is working to do. It was created after receiving a grant from the Department of Health and Human Services and was made to support justice-involved individuals with opioid abuse disorder. It is a deflection, diversion, and re-entry program. This means they work with individuals at risk on three different levels. Macon Hollister, the Recovery Diversion Coordinator in Orange County, says they work to meet people where they're at on their road to recovery. With the pre-arrest deflection, it's ideally it would happen before a charge even took place. The local law enforcement officials would re reach out to us on behalf of certain charges that are definitely related to substance use, and we could make a connection with them in the community. But Hollister realizes that this isn't always the case. There's also the option with the post-charge diversion, which is if they've gotten through and they've gotten charged, the DA has agreed to allow certain charges to be diverted in order to get access to treatment or connected to supports from the Lantern Project. Finally, the reentry program. It helps them find community and behavioral health support. 
Fenhagen says Orange County is very fortunate with support from local government on this aid initiative and says that having support from a sheriff who embraces harm reduction is something not a lot of other communities have. The Community Justice Resource Department has an opportunity to receive a second vending machine in the future. The team is still working out logistics of where to locate the second vending machine. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lorelai Sykes. The state Supreme Court is expected to rule soon in a case that could determine the future of education funding in North Carolina. The so-called Leandro case would force the legislature to send more money to school districts. Walter Ranke has more. Professor Eric Houck sits in his office at the UNC School of Education. Houck has been following the Leandro case since it was filed in 1994. Five poor school districts, Hoke, Halifax, Robison, Vance, and Cumberland, argued that the state was not providing them enough funding to provide an adequate education. There is a group of counties who are chronically and persistently underfunded by the state who wanted to challenge the state funding mechanism. When I say mechanism, I'm talking about this interlocking set of policies and procedures that move money from the state down to the district level. So they had a, a legitimate argument and they wanted to have the argument heard. In 1997, the Supreme Court decided in favor of the counties, saying that the North Carolina Constitution guarantees every child the opportunity to receive a sound basic education. The case remained mostly silent in the following years. But in 2021, the state attorney general and the five counties came to an agreement on the comprehensive remedial plan, which would further fund education by $6.8 billion over the next eight years. Houck says that he likes the plan and that it gives poor districts access to more resources. If you think about resources being provided on a ratio basis, it changes the ratios, which enriches lower wealth districts. Um, it puts some remedial plans in place, which also provides additional resources to lower wealth districts. Um, and then it pushes for change in the funding mechanism itself, which also downstream will provide benefits to lower wealth districts. The legislature, which was not involved in the Leandro case up to this point, did not implement the plan. In response, the court ordered that money be moved from the state treasury to fund parts of the plan. The legislature appealed the order and the case was taken up by the Supreme Court. Our first case this morning is Oak County Board of Education at all. The crux of the third iteration of the Leandro case is whether the judicial branch can force the legislature to appropriate funds, a power that is normally reserved for the legislature. During oral arguments in August, the plaintiffs argued that the court has the authority to transfer the funds because the legislature has consistently failed to fund education and thus has not complied with the Leandro rulings. Melanie Dubas, the attorney representing the plaintiffs, said in her oral argument that the court can force the legislature to comply with the constitutional right of education. When the state of North Carolina violates the fundamental affirmative constitutional right to the privilege of education for 20 years, can this court do anything about it? Plaintiffs submit that the answer is, and it must be yes. But Matthew Tilley, the attorney representing the GOP legislative leaders, said the transfer clearly violates the legislature's power to appropriate funds. The drafters of the Constitution intended the General Assembly to have the exclusive power of the purse. Ted Shaw, a law professor at UNC, says that the remedial plan would ease the suffering of students, but the implementation of it would have to involve the legislature. Given uh, both the scope of the required remedy and the nature of the violation that has been uh, found to exist on the state court level, there's a, um, uh, a real requirement and necessity uh, that uh, there's a remedy, and that remedy is going to have to involve the legislature. 
Houck, on the other hand, says that it is possible that the court forces the legislature to fund the plan, which would have widespread effects on both public education and government in North Carolina. I think it's going to fundamentally change governance in North Carolina, right? So, I mean, I'm excited for these programs, and I'm excited for additional infusions of money. I think research has shown over and over again, after school funding litigation, when there's more money provided to schools, that is a good thing for kids. While there is no timetable for a decision from the Supreme Court, it is likely that one will be delivered before the end of the year. While the Democrats currently have a 4-3 majority, two justice seats are up for election in the midterms in November, which means that the Republicans could control the Supreme Court starting in 2023. Shaw says that whatever the decision is, this is likely not the end of the Leandro case. I think that one way or another, there'll be more litigation over the failure of the legislature to fund the plan. In Chapel Hill, I'm Walter Rinke. A Chapel Hill startup is looking for new ways to close the care gap. With an Uber-like model, Care Yaya aims to make caregiving more accessible while empowering students in the process. Sophie Mallinton reports. And then Segas 2020 and Raise. UNC and professor Aaron Kent is jotting down study after study relating to caregiving and the care gap. But despite all these studies, many Americans don't know of caregiving challenges until they themselves are impacted. Groups like the National Academy of Medicine have recommendations for state policies that could support and prepare caregivers to help loved ones. Kent co-authored a study that ranked the 50 states and District of Columbia based on how many of these recommendations were met. In North Carolina? It's bad. It's really bad. We're 49th. About 18% of North Carolinians reported acting as a caregiver for a friend or family member with a health problem or disability in 2019. But caregivers across the state and country are struggling. An AARP report found about 60% of caregivers feel some form of financial strain in caring for a loved one. And one in four feel that caregiving has worsened their own health. Sometimes family members feel really, really burdened and overwhelmed, and not because of their their loved one's fault, but because there aren't widespread institutional uh, supports for them to be able to, to take a break. But the solution isn't as simple as hiring a care provider from a private company. One study found that of the people who are 65 and older who don't have Medicare, 74% of them could afford home care for two years if they liquidate all their assets. This is another aspect of the care gap. People who want care can't afford it. But on Franklin Street, a startup backed by Innovate Carolina is working to close that gap. Care Yaya formally launched earlier this year to provide a new approach to elder care. To founder Neil Shaw, The simplest way to describe it would be like Uber meets care.com. Using their website, you say where, when, and what care is needed. And a college student with Care Yaya can accept the request. Karyaya grew out of Shaw's own caregiving experiences. He first cared for his grandparents, and then later his wife after a cancer diagnosis. Caring for his loved ones required taking work sabbaticals that were just unsustainable without help. At that point in my life, I became extremely obsessed with the caregiving problem. I observed throughout just weeks and weeks at the hospitals how many people were dealing with this problem on their own. Karyaya is meant to be mutually beneficial. The startup accepts 20% of caregiving applicants, and these are students with intentions to go to things like med school. To get into med school, they should have at least 100 hours of clinical experience, and care students provide through CareYaya would count toward that. And students work on average for $15 an hour, making home care more affordable for those who need it. Many of CareYaya's patients come from nurses' referrals, 
But the help elders need isn't always medical in nature. Many just need help with daily activities of living, getting in and out of bed, making meals, or just companionship. It's these services, not medical ones, that students provide. Students like UNC senior Leah Warnke. A lot of the support the elderly need can be done by just a caring individual, which you will find in a lot of college students. Warnke's been working with Carrie Yaya since April, and she's provided care for those with dementia and Parkinson's disease, often being told she reminds them of their grandchild. There's the aspect of providing physical care, but also it's very much they just want someone to talk to, just listening to them talking about their ailments and their pain. And so it is it is amazing to be able to see a burden being lifted from someone just by them telling you about, about their problem. The experience has changed Warnke's own career goals, from wanting to do pediatrics to now wanting to change healthcare on a policy level. And there's a lot of room for change. When Professor Aaron Kent thought of caregiving, she recalled a meeting with writer Jason Carlewish. He described caregiving as the oldest profession because, you know, we're a species that, that cares about one another. And Karyaya aims to be a new solution to challenges that have been centuries in the making. In Chapel Hill, I'm Sophie Mallinson. UNC's Young Democrats Club spent yesterday in the pit registering students to vote. Hey, are y'all registered to vote? Yeah. Okay, cool. Take any piece of voting info you want and you have earned yourself a free donut. It was the voter registration deadline for the November 8th election. The Orange County Board of Elections says it has processed over 2,000 new registrations since mid-September. If you haven't registered, you can still do so at early voting sites, which will be open October 20th through November 5th. You'll need to show a form of ID with your name and address, but a photo ID is not required. November 1st is the last day to request a North Carolina absentee ballot, which needs to be postmarked by Election Day. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Brianna Atkinson. Just off Franklin Street, the Chapel Hill community is gathering to enjoy local art vendors, eat at food trucks, and even help paint a mural. It's part of the town's annual Festive Fall event. Hosted by Community Arts and Culture, the arts market will take place for two more Saturdays. Emma Cook has more. The Festival Arts Market used to shut down Franklin Street for a one-day community event filled with local art vendors and entertainers. But now located on 140 West Plaza by Chapel Hill's Quechula Restaurant, three smaller markets are taking place over several weekends instead. Melissa Bartoletta is the Marketing and Communications Coordinator for Community Arts and Culture, which hosts the event each year. She says that when it brought the festival back after the COVID-19 pandemic, community arts and culture asked for feedback, and the Chapel Hill community wanted more dates to enjoy it. Let's say, you know, you're out of town for the day that festival was happening. Now you, you know, have two more opportunities to come out and experience it. I'm on the edge. I'm on the edge, okay? And there is lots for community members to do and see. With a different set of art vendors from across North Carolina, different food trucks, and new performances each day, no two markets will be the same. Last Saturday featured Moonlight Dance Crew and music from the UNC Tarpeggios. October 15th will see the Poetry Fox and Tar Heel Voices a cappella, to name a few. 
October 22nd will have even more performances and activities. A popular interactive activity is the Community Mural, where festival goers can paint something of their own, and it's led by a different local artist each week. The first market had Mayanthi Jawardena, who says children, parents, and students alike contributed, and it was a great way for the community to come together in an artful way. Right at one when the event started, I had about 20 people coming up and ready to and eager to paint. And we ran out of room maybe three hours into the event and we kept making more room and finding more room. And I think that was so fun to see everyone just come together and do that. The mural started as predetermined shapes for patrons to paint in, like pumpkins and leaves. But it soon grew to be much more. As the day progressed, new shapes and designs started to appear on the mural, and it became a mosaic of the community. Jordana says that art brings together communities, and it's a reason why she became an artist. And so now you have this collective of everyone's interpretation, and it really is just like this beautiful masterpiece of like just community and togetherness. And a lot of the vendors say that this is what they loved about selling at Festival. David Jackson is the artist behind Jackson's Timber, who sold his handcrafted cutting boards and bowls at the market. It was his first time attending, and he says it was a great way to get involved in Chapel Hill. We love the area down here. We think it's a really cute community, and you know we want to be part of the, the whole scene here. Community Arts and Culture will also host the Thanksgiving Food Truck Rodeo in November and a community holiday parade in December. In Chapel Hill, I'm Emma Cook. It's football season, and among the cheering fans filling stadiums are two friends from Creedmoor who've been going to high school games for the past 20 years. But the way they see the game isn't like any other fan. It's Friday. Two friends are at a home football game in Creedmoor, North Carolina, both in light blue South Granville High School t-shirts. Hayden Shackelford is wearing a hat to protect his head from the bright sun, and Tom Husketh is wearing dark black glasses. As the two stand on the sidelines, Shackelford leans in to chat with Husketh about a passing play. There's the kick. Cover, cover! And receiver sees the ball, he takes off to the left, cuts cover through it. the right, cover and it. he's tackled around at the 40-yard line. This isn't any ordinary game conversation. It's a live play-by-play. Shackelford is the announcer, Husketh is the one-man audience. Because Husketh isn't seeing players tackle each other or score touchdowns, and his dark black glasses have nothing to do with the sun. Husketh is blind, and he's been that way since he was a baby. For the past 20 years, he and Shackelford have done this ritual at South Granville Games, where Shackelford watches, Husketh listens, and they both make predictions about plays. Okay, call your play. What you think they're going to do, Tom? Ah, field goal. You think, you think they're going to go for a field goal? Mm, that yes. far back yeah, on not, the 30-yard line? I, I mean, she's got to kick it almost 40 well, yards. Not, I don't know. They, they might go for a pass. Husket's love of football didn't come from playing the game. It came from experiencing his older brother Bill play the game, right on the South Granville field. But instead of having a personal play-by-play, Husketh relied on the announcer. Now, you notice he's not describing it like Hayden's doing it. Okay, got, again, double backfield, turns, he does a reverse pivot, and there's a pass. He throws, oh, and it's knocked down. Shackelford has always loved football. He loved it when he was a linebacker in Garden High School, 
He loved it when he taught the game as a middle school football coach, and he has always loved talking about it. So when he met Husketh, a fellow fan who needed the game described in real time, he knew it was something he was meant to do, even though he'd never done anything like it before. I know when we first started, I couldn't do it like that because in a lot of instances, he didn't really know what I was talking about because during the ball game, even the uh, announcers don't really call it that way because they're talking to a crowd that, that is visual. They're running a double backfield. He went in the center. He gave it to the second man through. He's taken off to the right. Yeah. And he's got some room. That's a good run, Tom. But over the years they've been going to games, Husketh has learned the plays, penalties, and even the yards. And he's still learning. Anytime they change a new formation, then a lot of times I have to kind of explain Tom what, you know, what formation they're in and what, where the different players are located. Like last year, when Husketh learned the triple option offense. You have your quarterback and you have your two running backs. He can put one back in motion. And all, during all the time he's reading what the defense is giving the man. So the quarterback can either do three things, hand off to the back, or keep the ball or pitch it. And through those decades, the two have developed more than just a special code. They've become best friends. So what do you think? You think he's going to pass the ball? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. You're probably right. Come with the pressure, come with the pressure. I know that's what I do. Most of their friendship is this, going to games and making predictions about plays. But it's also in the time they spend off the field, talking football. After the ball game, I know the ride home, uh, all we talk about is the what happened in the ball game and why we won, why we lost, what certain players did. And uh, we don't talk about very much other than that. But nothing beats the time they spend on the sidelines of the South Granville field. Speaking of football, this week UNC's biggest rivalry is back as the Tar Heels head down to Durham to take on Duke. Game time is 8 o'clock, and you can hear it here on 97.9 The Hill. Here to talk about the game is Carolina Connections' Noah Monroe. So Noah, UNC is 5-1 and one heading into the game against Duke this week after escaping Miami with a win. And looking on field, it looks like the defense really stepped up pretty big last week. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, although Miami quarterback uh, Tyler Van Dyke threw for 496 yards, when it mattered, the defense held him in check, especially on the interception in the game. Uh, with time running down, he was forced to think on his feet, and he made a brutal mistake uh, throwing it to DeAndre Boykins and ending the game. And Riley Leonard, the Duke quarterback, the past two weeks he's thrown for 129 yards and 136 yards. So he's not much of a passer as Van Dyke, so the defense needs to take advantage. Uh, on the run defense, you know, it's been fantastic. The front four and Cedric Gray and Power Eccles, they've been outstanding. Virginia Tech was only able to get less than three yards per carry two weeks ago. And Miami last week was shut down, only able to get 42 yards on 24 carries. Duke's a team that gets their touchdowns via the run, so if UNC can use that momentum they've had from the past two weeks, it'll be a big key in winning the game. Yeah, but you can't really talk about uh, the keys to winning the game without talking about the ex explosive offense that UNC has. So yeah, Drake May with his worst game last week, but still over 300 yards, still two touchdowns, and he led an eight-minute drive in the fourth quarter that proved pivotal. He's doing the right things, just a few mistakes, such as throwing two interceptions, one of which allowed Miami to get a field goal before the half. And the running game is going to be a big factor on Saturday because, as every other team has tried to do, defense want to, defenses want to stop Drake May. Caleb Hood shut off last week getting 74 yards. He's starting to carve out a role for himself. 
And, you know, overall, just a big game for the Tar Heels as a win here will further solidify their case of winning the ACC Coastal Division and maybe even get them into the top 25. Well, thank you so much for um, joining me here, Noah. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brianna. Finally this week, as the weather starts changing, so is students' clothing. Daisy Valenzuela asked students on campus about their favorite fall fashion. Chloe Williamson, I'm a sophomore and I'm an environmental studies major. My favorite item so far is my Lululemon scuba jacket, also my Taylor Swift cardigan, and I have a pair of baggy jeans that I'm really loving. My name's Hayden Burton, I'm a sophomore, and I have these like flannel pajama pants that are like plaid, and they make my legs feel good. I'm Isabel Zachariah, I'm a sophomore this year, and I'm majoring in exercise and sports science. I think my favorite fall fashion piece is like crop top sweater kind of thing, because it's like light and it also goes with like high-waisted jeans as well. My name is Victoria. I'm a master's of public policy student. Um, I would say my favorite fall fashion trend is like grandpa sweaters. <laughs> um, and then definitely like my Doc Martens. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pekamian. I'm Brianna Atkinson. And I'm Will Christensen. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.